Welcome back to another episode of the Misinformation Podcast. We are just diving straight into, you know, some Civil War fact versus fiction, a topic that's near and dear to John's heart. Uh, it's November 23rd. Let me check my my news app, see if anything new happened in the... Oh, uh, ooh, the Wall Street Journal, breaking news. Uncle Doopy was a corporate icon, and in Joe Biden's eyes, it's everything that went wrong with American capitalism. Well, there you go. I, I know those words, but I'm curious what the take would actually be. Yeah, so it has to do with DuPont's up and down history shaped Biden's views on business. Hmm. So I don't know. I'm not going to read the article, at least not right now. Uh, feel free to go check out Wall Street Journal. They're a, a fairly reputable news source. I, I get all my news from OWN, so I can't really speak to that. Oh, right, right. I mean, it is one America, right? One American news source, so. We only need one place to go. I I really prefer the Epoch Times. That seems to be my go-to mm-hmm. as of late. Um, and then every once in a while, I dabble with a little Breitbart. A little QAnon? Yeah, well, I don't like to define myself by QAnon. Uh, um, but they're not wrong. You know, I might run for office someday. I can't be on record with this. <laughs> <laughs> I'm 100% kidding. You've got you've got great you've got great uh, credentials, Mr. Ackerland, but you were on a podcast where you said you identified with Q. You sympathize to the Q? Let's be serious. There are no credentials for office anymore. Oh, there are not. No way. Actually, Zero. sympathizing with Q might get you more votes. It, it Ooh, might. That's a hot take. It Ooh. is a credential of its own. I mean, there has been uh, the first QAnon supporter that's been elected to Congress this year. So there's that. Yep. So Mm -hmm. much fun. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think, well, we'll have to get into the topic, but I, it's just, will any of it go away once they, they certify the votes or will it just be, you know, Oh, dominion was, was, uh, they just didn't see the dominion hacking or they were bought out by the lizard Democrats or something. (laughs) Yeah, it'll L- lizard there. Democrats new party. I call it. <laughs> there's like liberal Democrats. There's lizard Democrats. <laughs> hmm, okay, interesting. But what is Joe Biden's policy on flies? <laughs> Free for all, John. Don't you know the fly that landed on Pence's head? It was a Democratic <laughs> spy sent to suck his brain and read his thoughts, and then transmit that to Kamala Harris. So that she could combat what he was going to say before he said it. There it is. Perfect. That's that's the only way that she sounded as good as she did compared to him in that I, debate. Gentlemen, I think we have a political platform right here. Well, Civil War. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Lizard Party 2024. Let's go. <laughs> Anyways, so I'll be honest with you, John. I have not read these show notes. Yeah. Oh, you are in for a treat. What's our plan? All right, so if you know me at all, you know how much I love the Civil War. I, oh, yeah. I, I jokingly told someone a couple weeks ago that I'm like three drinks and a stupid question away from ranting about the Civil War, like at all times, like without fail. So the goal of tonight is just to give you guys a really, really quick run through of the history of the Civil War, not like too in depth, but just the cliff notes. Because 
unfortunately, it's become a political opinion this year, what with Black Lives Matter and controversies around Confederate statues and army bases named after Confederate generals. And it shouldn't be. And the politics of the present day are really informed by the history. And I've heard a lot of things said about the war that are just straight up wrong within this last year, more than anything. It really started taking off around Charlottesville. Around the Charlottesville protest is when people really started talking about the Civil War a lot around me. And I was so freaking happy about that. (laughs) Not going to lie. That was the highlight of that year for me. Like people are interested in what I have to say. (laughs) Oh my goodness, this is relevant for the first time in like a hundred years. So so before we get, you know, too far into the actual facts and figures that you've got, you know, eloquently laid out, I'm sure, I do have a quick question in regards to, to more recent history. What year was it that Mrs. Tilden threw a Civil War themed birthday party for her son? I was eight. Uh, <laughs> wow. There is I am sure when we share this, it's gonna be the picture of me holding my family's Civil War sword that a relative carried at the Siege of Vicksburg and me just cheesing hard. If you don't post that as the Instagram picture that you know publicizes this podcast, I'm gonna be severely disappointed. Oh, we, we need to. We played Pin the Union Soldier on Richmond, Virginia. <laughs> wow. It was so much fun. (laughs) Oh my goodness. It was so great. At eight years old, you were like this. Eight years. (laughs) (laughs) Tim, I read I read a history of the Russian Revolution every year at Christmas time. Like this this is who I am. You are so messed up. I you know what? You're a you're a you're a unique human being. I had too much scotch. Treasure. I had too much scotch last summer and cried about World War One. Like, <laughs> I'm not just saying like I teared up, like I ugly cried to my then girlfriend, now wife, about World War One. Like, what you know, specifically, that is true love. It, it started with we were drinking scotch and we started playing uh, it's like Scottish and Irish folk music, and then we went to like Civil War music, and then we went to like drinking music, and then like. By about two thirds of the bottle of scotch, it ended up on like World War One British soldier poetry, which is incredibly grim and depressing. This is me. This is this is what I bring to the table. Well, who knew you were so sensitive? I apparently Scotch John and uh, the Battle of the Somme don't mix. But anyway, yeah. So Civil War. <laughs> the, the goal of this isn't to give you guys a detailed run through of every little bit of the history. Because, again, there are sources that can do that and do it better. It's to talk about the main claims that have come out of the war and what people are repeating and believing about the war and what's true and what isn't true. We are going to do a little, a really quick run through, though, of the topics just to make sure that everybody remembers what they can from a junior year of high school. And, and real quick for our Southern listeners, uh, if you don't recognize the Civil War title, um, you may have heard of it as the War of Northern Aggression. Yeah, that's that's an oldie. All right. Anyone have any other questions? Take it away. All right. So to first kick this bad boy off, we'll just talk about like the really quick outline of the war itself. So in 1860, 
there are a couple of candidates running for president, among them Stephen A. Douglas, Abraham Lincoln, and John C. Breckinridge. And Lincoln is the electoral college and popular vote winner of that year. South Carolina convenes a convention shortly after that uh, election for reasons we'll discuss later. So on December 20th, 1860, a formal document is released by this convention out of South Carolina. It's pretty sparse. It's very legalistic, but it, it basically comes out and says that South Carolina will be seceding from the Union. A couple of days later, there's an actual justification document which lists out causes and reasons. And that's important because we're going to come back to that one later. Six other states uh, join by February with South Carolina to form the Confederate States of America. Those six other states are Texas, Alabama, Florida, Georgia, Mississippi, and Louisiana. There's these couple months uh, between 1860 and 1861 where no one's really sure what's going to happen with the future of the country. But when Lincoln refuses to order key Union positions evacuated in the South, which the Confederate States of America are claiming as their own, Confederates shell Fort Sumter in the harbor of Charleston, South Carolina. The Union defenders of the fort eventually uh, cede it over to the Confederates with no loss of life. I think only a horse in the fort died, but that's not going to be the case for the next four years. Lincoln calls for 70,000 troops to put this rebellion down and four upper south states that have kind of been prevaricating about their next steps secede. And those are Virginia, North Carolina, Arkansas, and Tennessee. So there we have the 11 Confederate states of America, Texas, Alabama, Florida, Georgia, Mississippi, Louisiana, Virginia, North Carolina, Arkansas, Tennessee. Both sides think this is going to be a a pretty quick war, uh, but for different reasons. The North or the Union is really confident about the fact they have an army. Uh, The Confederates are really convinced that one Confederate defending his homeland is worth 10 Yankees. But the first clash at First Manassas or Bull Run in 1861 shows that the Confederates can fight, and they actually do a, a really good job repulsing this Union attack in Northern Virginia. The D.C. aristocracy and upper class was actually so convinced that this was going to be a rout that they came out with picnics in carriages to watch the battle happening and actually had to hightail it out with the army back to D.C. So at this battle in northern Virginia, one South Carolinian officer sees a Virginian colonel by the name of Thomas Jackson holding a position and exhorts his men with the following. Jackson is holding like a stone wall, rally behind the Virginian. And with that, one of the key heroes of the Confederacy is born, Thomas Stonewall Jackson. And we're going to talk about him a decent bit today in passing, because his statue is up all over the South right now. So this little engagement, the the first real big battle of the war, proves that this is not going to be over by Christmas. The Confederacy has proven that it can fight against a a Northern army. And the next couple years of the war kind of continue that trend. The the first few years of the war for the Army of Northern Virginia, commanded by Robert E. Lee with Stonewall Jackson as a key corps commander, are really just a story of the South kicking ass. They're really just holding their own against the Union in Virginia and just embarrassing a slew of generals, one after the other, at places like Fredericksburg, the Seven Days, the Peninsular Campaign, and Second Manassas. However, while all this is going on, the Confederacy is losing big out west in Louisiana, Arkansas, and Tennessee. Union gunboats and armies are capturing key positions uh, down the Mississippi River, 
Port Donaldson and Henry fall in the spring of 1862, New Orleans, which is the largest city in the South in May 1862, parts of Tennessee throughout 1862, and then Little Rock, Arkansas in September 1863. While the Army of Northern Virginia is defending Richmond as the capital of the Confederacy and doing a pretty good job at it, the Army's not really equipped to make big pushes into Union territory. So they make a foray into Union-held Maryland in September of 1862 at Antietam in Maryland, which proves to be the bloodiest single day in American history. The battle is technically a draw, but it does end with Lee retreating back into Virginia, and Lincoln uses this to issue the Emancipation Proclamation, which only ends slavery in territory that the Confederacy holds. Jackson and Lee score a crushing victory over the Army of the Potomac in May of 1863 at Chancellorsville near Fredericksburg, Virginia, but Jackson is inadvertently shot by some Confederate guards returning after the battle and dies a few days later of the infection. That summer, the Army of Northern Virginia pushes into Pennsylvania and after two days of bloody fighting at Gettysburg, loses on the third day after Lee orders Longstreet's Corps on a suicidal frontal assault known as Pickett's Charge. And that's the high water mark of the Confederacy. That's really the peak of those four years of Confederate history. <sighs> to make matters worse, the last key Confederate position on the Mississippi, Vicksburg, Mississippi, surrenders on the 4th of July, 1863. And that basically cements the fact that the Union is in control out west, but Lee and the Army of Northern Virginia are really the best hope the Confederacy has out east in Virginia. In 1864, a popular general by the name of Ulysses S. Grant, who's famous for the capture of Forts Henry and Donelson at the beginning of the war, is made commander of the Army of the Potomac and lays out plans for the end of the war. His first couple of pushes into northern Virginia against Lee are very bloody to the point where Grant is known as the butcher in northern papers uh, after a couple of really horrendous battles. There's one at uh, Cold Harbor outside of Richmond where he orders a direct assault on a position that results in 7,000 Union casualties in 10 minutes. So while that's not going particularly well in Virginia, General William Tecumseh Sherman takes Atlanta in September of 1864 and begins his push to Savannah on the infamous March to the Sea, where the idea is that Sherman's army is going to leave Atlanta, go off the grid, and live off the land, burn down plantations, destroy railways, free slaves, pillage, ham, and food supplies from Confederates, destroy crops, burn down warehouses, etc. And he eventually reaches uh, Savannah on the Georgian coast in December of 1864, and then telegraphs Lincoln with the following, quote, I beg to present you as a Christmas gift the city of Savannah with 150 heavy guns and plenty of ammunition and about 25,000 bales of cotton. Afterwards, his army resolves to push north and continue this scorched earth policy through the Carolinas. So while all this is happening, the Union has been laying siege to the Confederacy through an anaconda plan of naval blockades just around the coast of uh, the Confederacy. The antebellum South didn't really have a ton of factories, so they had to import quite a bit of material from abroad, and this naval blockade is key for the Union battle plan. So this plan and these naval blockades are causing huge supply issues within the South. Inflation is insane. Some basic foodstuffs increased by like 200, 300% over the course of the war in terms of cost. The South had less people at the start of the war, so manpower is low to begin with. There's 
slave revolts and uh, desertion from the army on top of all of this. So the Confederacy's ability to fight is basically dying at the end of 1864. Lee is forced to break out of a nine-month siege at Petersburg on the outskirts of Richmond and Hightail South in April of 1864, which lets the Union capture the city. He surrenders at Appomattox Courthouse on April 9th, which basically ends the war. A week or two later, Confederate General Johnston surrenders to Sherman in North Carolina, and there are a couple of sporadic pockets of resistance still uh, across the Confederacy at this point. The last battle of the war is actually a Confederate victory in far south Texas at Palmito Ranch in May of 1865, but there's no big armies left in the field at this point. The, The war is completely over. However, Lincoln is shot April 14th at Ford's Theater by John Wilkes Booth and dies a day later. And that's the beginning of this period of Reconstruction, which could be its own topic. It's a pretty rich and deep one. But some huge changes in American society uh, occur over the next couple of years with the passing of the Reconstruction Amendments, the 13th, which abolishes slavery, the 14th, which grants citizenship and equal rights to slaves, and then the 15th prohibits a denial of voting on race, color, or previous condition of servitude. And that is the really, really quick sophomore level run through of the American Civil War. Thanks for running through that with us, John. I know that, you know, it's a it's a much broader topic than what 10 minutes or so of of super high level history can cover. But I mean I really appreciate you kind of running through that. I think it at this point in time, you know, it really makes sense to what do you think, start diving into the claims? Or do you want to talk about why you love it so much? Sure. I thought you'd never ask. Uh, (laughs) I'll keep keep my soapbox brief. But one of the things that I think is really interesting about this topic is that there's just a huge amount of access to sources. Basically, every town east of the Mississippi in the country has some sort of connection to the Civil War. And a lot of them on the other side of the Mississippi do, too. Literacy rates were above 70% for the Union and above 50% for the Confederacy. So there's there's a lot of access to material to understand. And because it's all mostly in English, there's a lot you can learn about it. Everybody who was involved with this knew what was happening was the most important part of their life. There's a lot of letter writing and journal keeping that is really, really integral to this. And everybody seemed to understand that what was happening north or south was going to be important for the future of the country. And they really speak about that in a really tangible way. It's also an extremely bloody uh, affair for the country. There were huge improvements in artillery and rifle power in the 1840s. Uh, The mini balls invented in, I want to say, 1848, where uh, this conical bullet can be fired out of a, a smooth bore, a rifled musket, which means that these heavier balls, when they hit, can shatter a bone, which leads to a really high amputation rate. And there's just incredible blood loss. Uh, If you take the percentage out, it's something like 4% of the population of the country died in the Civil War. This leads to really, really high casualty figures at some of these battles. There's a quote from the wheat field at Antietam where there's multiple Confederate and Union pushes through this field. And Uh, An observer writes that the the wheat looks like it it had been cut with a knife. There's just so many bullets have been fired. And at one point, the Texas Brigade stops a a Confederate, a Union push, I'm sorry. And someone asks the commander, John Bellhood of the brigade, where the rest of the unit is. And he says, dead on the field, because the loss of life was that high. And, And that's reflected in the landscape of the battlefield. 
ones, like the, the Bloody Angle at Spotsylvania, the Devil's Den at Gettysburg. There were really close-knit and terrible fights across the country uh, over this issue. It's also a group of characters that know each other really, really well. Like the army in 1860 was a very small institution. A lot of these guys knew each other. So Sherman and Thomas, who later becomes famous at Chickamauga, were actually roommates at West Point. And it's it's kind of weird to think of these guys as, you know, 19-year-olds at West Point who later go on to be some of the most important characters in human history. Pickett and Jackson were both 46 grads. Armistead is a Confederate general who dies attacking Gettysburg, and the news is carried across to his friend, General Hancock, on the Union side. So there's also a, a saying associated with World War I, which is, generals die in bed. And I don't think that's true in the Civil War at all. There was actually a lot of high death rates among generals because the way that the war was fought at the time, you kind of had to leave from the front without radio or Zoom or direct message. So a lot of these guys who you read about uh, in the Civil War, they're not like Eisenhower during World War II, where they're you know sitting behind a desk getting reports. A lot of times they're up near the front. Uh, at Chickamauga, at one point, the farmhouse that the Union has occupied is so close to the front that the generals are literally screaming to be heard over the rifle fire because there's a skirmish line outside. Plus, I, I think it's, you know, the the real American revolution. I, I th- will you know, die on that hill. I, I think in terms of the impact on the country, I think that things changed considerably after the Civil War as opposed to the Revolutionary War. And I think that that's reflected in the legacy around the controversy around uh, the Confederate flag, around states' rights, around the use of Confederate statues across the South, the naming of army posts after Confederate generals. There's a lot of really quick changes happened after the Civil War, which makes it very, very easy for me to say that this was the real American Revolution. I've never heard of it referred to that before, but it makes sense because... Like, as you were kind of running through the history before, I was thinking about how America would be different and how we learned history and how that would have been different had the South won the American Civil War. And I was thinking about, like, if the South would have won in the North, we would have viewed them as, I mean, we probably would have rewritten history in a sense where the South were viewed as as rebels, similar to today. But as they won, we would have probably talked about how we, you know, kind of grew our relationship to become allies. And then the South would have just written themselves like heroes. A C- couple of thoughts off of that. There's a, a book series that I have never read, but I have friends who swear by it called Guns of the South, which basically takes the idea of what happens if the South wins the war and then writes a historical fiction series off of that. And in, in that book, the South actually fights against the Union in World War One and World War Two, which... I think isn't far-fetched to think about. But it's interesting you say talk about heroes because I wrote a paper in college about Confederate war music. And there are a lot of sources that go back to the American Revolution and try to claim the legacy of the, the founding fathers as this revolt against tyranny. There's one to kind of give you guys a flavor. The, the title that's leaping out to me is 76 and 61 just linking the American Revolution and the Confederate Revolution that strongly. So, John, speaking of conspiracy theories, 
and Civil War, all the time I hear about, you know, there's a common rebuttal that Civil War wasn't actually about slavery, it was about states' rights. What do you have to say about that? What's the, the, the best facts and evidence around that claim or uh, theory? Oh, real quick, John. My favorite answer to, to that claim is, you're right, it was about states' rights. States' rights to what? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I also right. have some some takes on that earlier because the Confederacy was pretty hypocritical about states' rights when it didn't su- suit them. I, I've kind of heard this explained as when you know a, nothing about the Civil War, you think it's about slavery. When you learn a little more about the Civil War, you think it's not about slavery. When you learn more, you realize it's totally about slavery. And what I mean by that, <laughs> what, what I mean by that is I think that in the North, in you know, like a couple of weeks, you have to learn about this really huge topic in American history, you don't have a lot of time to go into the nuance of it. So I had an advisor in college who literally wrote his thesis on one railroad and its importance to the Union war effort. That was what he wrote his, his final thesis on. He spent years writing about one railway. Who was your advisor, John? That, that was uh, Dr. Johnson. Oh, the man. He's, he's so cool. But yeah, like it, it's such a complex topic that people can pick something like that and write about it for years, you can't do it justice. So I think the Civil War is typically presented as a Union was fighting against slavery, South was fighting for slavery. And the Union wasn't fighting against slavery. They were fighting against secession. They didn't give two craps about rights of Black people. There was there was so much racism in the North at the time. Probably not as much as the South, but definitely still a lot of really racist stuff. So I guess I get where people are coming from a little bit, but secession itself was definitely about slavery. The Civil War was about secession, and secession was extremely tied to slavery. So here's a a quote from Vice President Stevens of the Confederacy, a speech given at the outbreak of the war in Savannah, Georgia. And this is called the Cornerstone Speech. This is just a little clip of it. And he's talking about the Confederacy itself. Its foundations are laid. Its cornerstone rests upon the great truth, that the Negro is not equal to the white man, that slavery subordination to the superior race is his natural and normal condition. This, our new government, is the first in the history of the world based upon this great physical, philosophical, and moral truth. That's mind-bendingly ridiculous that the cornerstone rests upon that great truth that the Negro is not equal to the white man. What the... It's mind-boggling how, like, just how normally racist people were. Like, people who were pretty nice and well-adjusted could just be so ridiculously racist. Like it's something that I don't think people really understand about American history. Yeah. I mean, if, if you took any public figure, most public figures who are kind of out and about today and you had them say that statement, they would be mass uproar. Like people would cancel them so fast. They'd be done. Like, for good, which I think rightfully so. Well, and I, I think the, the most telling thing here isn't that you know people make these quotes. It's that the people listening feel confident in having them say that, right? Like you can find people saying that Jews run the world on the internet today. You're not going to find anywhere near as blatant anti-Semitism as existed in like Tsarist Russia in 1910, where people could just say like, well, of course the Jews run the world, right? Like th- that's the part that really stands out here. 
And he's not alone. Like South Carolina, like I stated earlier, was the first state to secede. They are literally the cause of this is from their declaration of causes that I referenced earlier that we'd return to. Quote, they have denounced as sinful the institution of slavery, they being uh, the union. They have permitted open establishment among them of societies whose avowed object is to disturb the peace and align the property of the citizens of other states. And those would be abolitionist societies in the North. They have encouraged and assisted thousands of our slaves to leave their homes. And those who remain have been incited by emissaries, books, and pictures to servile insurrection. Then going on a little bit later, all the states north of that line, that line being the Mason-Dixon, have united in the election of a man to the high office of president of the United States, good old Abe, whose opinions and purposes are hostile to slavery. He is to be entrusted with the administration of the common government because he has declared that the, quote, government cannot endure permanently half slave, half free, that the public mind must rest in the belief that slavery is in the course of ultimate extinction. Their votes have been used to inaugurate a new policy hostile to the South and destructive of its belief and safety. The guarantees of the Constitution will then no longer exist to the equal rights of the states, and the equal rights of the states will be lost. The slaves-holding states will no longer have the power of self-government or self-protection, and the federal government will become their enemy. This is wild because, like, as you read that, I was thinking about, I mean, a little bit about the equal rights of the states to the federal government. And when that is written and and when we talk about it and even when it's talked about today like we talk about states rights versus federal rights and i think originally it was meant to to balance the power between the people and the federal government because of the founding fathers relationship with the monarchy that was in place back in england but when when you look at it today it's oftentimes misconstrued as the states you know as the people and the federal government as big brother where in actuality here it's the state government versus the federal government i I think that a key caveat that i would like a lot more people to recognize about american history is that the u.s government is not the only tyrannical thing that has operated in this country and i what i mean by that is yeah the federal government has done a lot of messed up stuff but if you look at like who really harmed black people in the south It was local police departments, local towns, mobs of private citizens, and state governments. The federal government was actually a force for good in the South. So yes, tyranny exists at the federal level. Let's not pretend that local bodies are completely immune from uh, tyranny, because there are a couple of uh, war crimes we'll talk about later on that in the South that occurred that show that that's not always the case. But, But yeah, I mean, and you know, South Carolina is not the only state that was seceding that said this. I'm only going to quote Mississippi and Texas's, and I'll just do this really quickly. Uh, but there's also a lot of speeches that, that are given. There's a really famous one by Isham Harris of Tennessee that while Tennessee never gave a formal declaration of secession, their governor came out and like basically said it's about slavery. And then, of course, there's private letters, uh, newspaper articles, editorials, There's so much evidence that it was about slavery. So to quote Mississippi, our position is thoroughly identified with the institution of slavery, the greatest material interest of the world. Its labor supplies the product which constitutes by far the largest and most important portion of commerce of the earth. These products are peculiar to the climate verging on the tropical regions and by an imperious law of nature, none but the black race can bear exposure to the tropical sun. These products have become necessities of the world and a blow at slavery is a blow at commerce and civilization. Texas follows that up with 
The controlling majority of the federal government, under various pretenses and disguises, has so administered the same as to exclude the citizens of the southern states, unless under odious and unconstitutional restrictions, from all the immense territory owned in common by all the states of the Pacific Ocean, for the avowed purpose of acquiring sufficient power in the common government as a means of destroying the institutions of Texas and her sister slaveholding states. So again, explicitly tying it back to slavery. Yeah, I was talking to, I don't remember who I was talking to when it would have been like April-ish time frame, uh, kind of right at the, the beginning of the pandemic where there was a big push to take out uh, Confederate statues. I forgot who I was talking to, but basically we were talking about like how the Confederacy is just as much a part of American history as uh, the Union side of the Civil War. And I was like, yes, it is. But the Confederate statues, they they hold the symbolism to an institution that can find, what is it, 13% of the American people into slavery? Like, that's, that's ridiculous. I, I think it's higher in, I mean, like, there are counties in the, in the South during slavery where 50% of a county is black because it's an agricultural county and everybody is either involved in the plantation society or is a slave. So, yeah, I mean... You know, in the South, it may have been closer to 20% of the population was enslaved. I'm wow. looking at percent of Confederate states black population. Table one, black and white population from 1860. So the Upper South, Lower South. John, do you know what the Upper South versus Lower South means? Yeah, Upper South is going to be like Virginia, North Carolina, and Tennessee. And then Lower South is going to be like Mississippi, Alabama, Georgia. Okay. Basically like row one, row two. Okay. Okay. So all still Confederate states. So let's see. In 1860, the free black population in the upper South was 3.1%, lower South 1.1%. And then the enslaved black population in the upper South was 20.5%. And in the lower South was 43.1%. And that is from Bowdoin College. It's in Brunswick, Maine. It's a private liberal arts college. Take that source for what you will. I think that's from the census of 1860. So you take the American population as of as of today at X percent, and you look at it back then, especially in in Confederate states. I mean, it was it was a lot of people. So, I mean, and I also have heard claims from people that you know people sided with their states, so you know it should be called the war between the states. We can't blame people for choosing to follow their state out of the union. And this is kind of, you know, presented as particular, uh, like Robert E. Lee was offered command of the Union Army, but eventually sided with Virginia when they left because he couldn't fight against his home state. And it's it's all well and good. And I think that's true for a lot of people that, you know, most people followed their home state. But there were a lot of people who really voted with their hands as far as who they were supporting in this war. So every state except South Carolina offered the Union a regiment. There was literally a coup in Austin, Texas to overthrow Sam Houston because he didn't support secession. Virginia was literally one state and West Virginia had such a low percentage of slaveholders that they split because they didn't want to fight a rich man's war. Um, Missouri and Kentucky both offered sizable number of troops to the Confederacy. They were both claimed as states by the Confederacy on their flag. Kentucky actually tried to stay neutral until they were invaded by a, a Confederate army led by Leonidas Polk. And there were riots in Baltimore at the beginning of the war when Union troops moved in. And Maryland never left 
uh, the Union. And there also are a lot of famous uh, Union generals who are from the South. Farragut, uh, the famous admiral of uh, the Civil War, who's famous for screaming, damn the torpedoes, full full speed ahead at Mobile in Alabama. He was from Tennessee. General Thomas, the Rock of Chickamauga, Sherman's roommate who repulsed 10-plus Confederate attacks to let the the Union retreat. He was from Virginia. A General Miggs, the quartermaster, he's the reason we have Arlington National Cemetery, because his son died, and he confiscated one of Lee's plantations and made it a cemetery uh, for all the dead. He was from Georgia. Vice President Johnson was from East Tennessee and was made the military governor of Tennessee at one point uh, during this. So there were a lot of people, a lot of white people across the South, particularly in counties and areas of the state that did not have high percentage of slaveholders who had no issue, had no reason to fight and were explicitly pro-unionist. And we're going to talk about a lot about what happened to them later on when we talk about Confederate war crimes. Yeah, I hear, I hear about those names and I hear about like the stories that you've shared, whether it's tonight or or in the past, you know, we've known you for a while now. And uh, I think through that is where I've gotten most of my Civil War history knowledge. And I think about how those guys, you know, Farragut, Thomas, Miggs, Johnson, at least from from my perspective, those were the true heroes of the Civil War. The people who looked the people around them in the eye and said, no, this is wrong. I'm standing up for this and I'm I'm joining the opposition or in this case the uh, I don't know I guess the unions weren't necessarily the opposition. I had a conversation with a friend one time who was complaining about like the fact that rural white people in uh, the Midwest fly the Confederate flag and he's like there's so much badass union history that is just as much your history that is so cool like the Iron Brigade of Wisconsin, Indiana, and Michigan is so notorious that when they arrive at Gettysburg, a Confederate officer sees their black hats and says, it's those damned black-hatted fellows again. That's not a militia. It's the Army of the Potomac. And like at one point on the first day of Gettysburg, I forget the regiment from Michigan. I want to say it's the 24th. They're like outnumbered three to one against a North Carolina regiment. And they just fight like a, a walking retreat back into the town. And they... At one point, a Confederate officer on the other side says, no man can take up uh, our colors and live, and then picks up the Confederate flag and is shot dead because the the Michigan infantrymen have just been like doming Confederate flag bearers for the last half an hour. The the first Minnesota at Gettysburg is literally told to plug a hole against four times their number and takes 81% casualties in the process. But they bought 15 minutes of time. And the next day at Pickett's Charge, one of their members who was not at that battle wins a Medal of Honor by taking a Virginian battle flag, which Minnesota still has (laughs) and refuses to give back to Virginia. But yeah, there's like there's all this really, really cool Union history throughout the Midwest that is so, so much more interesting, I think, than the Confederate history. You know what I think we need to help spread that? I think we need an Assassin's Creed game where, you know, the hero is part of the Union Army and he's got to fight against the Confederates. Or we need to do like a like a Call of Duty where it's Union versus Confederacy, where we can educate people on like the badassery of the Union Army. One of the, the things I think that I really love about the Civil War is there wasn't really a professional army in 1860. There was, but it was small and it wasn't prepared for this type of war. And at at really random points across all of these battlefields, 
these small groups of normal people changed the course of history. Hmm. So the, the 20th of Maine is probably the most famous Civil War regiment I can think of because at the, on the second day of Gettysburg at the hill they're on, at the very end of Union lines, they run out of ammunition and they order uh, a bayonet charge down the hill and rout the Confederates and take a lot of prisoners. And just this random group of people from coastal Maine, fishermen, blacksmiths, farmers, traders, saved the Union. The first Minnesota basically committed group suicide to buy 15 minutes of time at Gettysburg to the point where, you know, 70 years later, Calvin Coolidge gives a speech and says something along the lines of the first Minnesota deserves to be ranked first and foremost among the saviors of their country. Yeah. So I think that's like, I I would agree wholeheartedly that there's so much cool shit the union did. That's way more interesting to me. All right. I got to get back to the claims because I could wax poetic about this all night. Oh yeah. Yeah. And in the interest of time, we should probably uh, keep, Uh, Keep moving forward. So, uh, well, did we we already did the second claim, right? Couldn't have been about slavery because only a small uh, minority not, of whites not quite slaves. So, I've always heard this one kind of rebutted as if you take like the men of the house who own slaves, it's not that big a percentage. But when you include the entire family, it, it rises pretty quickly. So. Oh, citing from Snopes, it's like 40% or more of white families in South Carolina and Mississippi owned slaves, uh, which were the highest in the South. A lot of the South, Texas, Georgia, Arkansas, are in like the 20 to 30% of white families owned slaves. And while there are a couple of slave states still in the, the Union, like Missouri, like Kentucky, like Delaware, and Maryland, a very low percentage of the population owned slaves in those states. So Delaware, it's under like 4% of the population owned slaves, as opposed to 20% of the population in Arkansas, which is the lowest percentage of a, a slave state in the Confederacy. But I think the other point, though, is you don't need to own slaves to live in a slave society. Slaves were a huge part of the economy in terms of getting rented out to poor farmers at certain occasions. The social strata in Southern society was such that even if you were poor white, you were still free and white. And that was important. There's all of these horror stories about Haiti and other slave revolts that are really prominent in Southern thinking. And there's been a lot of propaganda about what's going to happen if slaves are freed. White women are going to be raped. Uh, Whites are going to cease to exist as a race anymore because of race mixing. There's going to be violence and massacres. And so like, that's why you don't necessarily need to own slaves as a white Southerner in 1860 to think that your position is better off fighting with the slaveholders, with the slaveholding patrician class of the South. I think it's also worth pointing out that the slave states in the Union could have been Confederate by the skin of their teeth. I mean, again, like we said, there were riots in Baltimore, uh, Missouri and Kentucky supplied a lot of Confederate regiments. Jesse James actually got his start as a Confederate insurgent in Missouri. Those slave states in the Union were definitely like the borderlands of the Union and the Confederacy. Like they could have easily been slave states. So the fact that there was legal slavery there doesn't disprove the fact that the secession was about slavery. You know, you mentioned, like for the statistical people out there, you mentioned that 40% or more of families in South Carolina. I'd be interested because at that point in time, you know, women didn't have 
voting power yet. Children obviously didn't either. I would like to see a percentage of of just white men because the, at that point in time, a lot of people had a lot of kids too. So it'd be like, hey, let's look at the entire population of white men and how many of those own slaves. Is that a number that we have access to? Off the top of my head, no, but yes. Somewhere out there, it exists. I think it goes down to under 10% of the population, if you phrase it that way. But I think the rebuttal to that, though, is, you know, when you're talking about a family, you wouldn't just say like, oh, this family's net, this household income is over $80,000. But like, if you only take the men's salary, it's X, right? Like the household is bundled. That, that's kind of like why I think you need to think of it in terms of families. Because yeah, like, you know, you might be, you might not be a slaveholder, but if your dad's the slaveholder, one, you might be paying, your schooling is probably getting paid for by slave labor. And, and oftentimes children often follow in the footsteps of their dads, especially in that point in time. But then the, the crazy thing to me is you look at the 40% of the population owned slaves in South Carolina or Mississippi compared to like 5% in Delaware. Basically, if you just take that 40% and spread it out across the lower South, where 40.5% of the population was enslaved Black people, that's insane that 80% of people were involved in some way, shape, or form with slavery just in either being owners or slaves. Exactly. And it's actually really detrimental to the Confederate war effort. At one point, they pass uh, a Confederate Congress being they, they pass a law that's referred to as the 20 Negro law, because it basically is if you own that many slaves, you need to be involved in making sure they're being orderly and producing for the war effort and not running off or rioting. And this basically gives rich, richer uh, Confederates a pass. And, you know, poorer whites who might be afraid of the end of slavery or what could happen to the South if slaves are freed are starting to think, well, why should I die for a rich guy? Why should I go lose a leg at Antietam or Chancellorsville or Chickamauga when so-and-so can sit on his Tidewater plantation and drink bourbon and watch the cotton harvest come in? And then of course, like, I mean, like Jefferson Davis's slaves, like the president of the Confederacy's slaves ran off to union lines in Louisiana without white men there to enforce the slave system. Slaves were just noping the heck out of there all the time. Like the system just could not work without white people there to make it work. And most of them had to be out fighting to keep the union at bay. I love the irony of that. The fact that in order to keep their slaves, they had to go fight a war. And while they were gone fighting the war, their slaves were escaping. There's a very late push by Patrick Cleburne, who's a uh, an Irish-born Arkansan. Is that how you pronounce den- demonym of Arkansas? Arkansan. Arkansan. I think that's probably accurate. Arkansan. Sadly. Sure. Yeah, we'll say that. <laughs> and, and he makes a push. Like he's not as you know bigoted as some of the other people in the South, and he makes a push for doing uh, what had been done in, during the Revolution, where. If you sign up and fight as a slave, you can get your freedom uh, for the Confederacy. And that's resoundly shot down. And there's, I forget which general it is, but I've seen the primary source where the guy is writing and basically says something along the lines of, this is the most pernicious idea that has ever been announced. If soldiers, if slaves make good soldiers, this whole experiment is for naught. And that's the thing, like the, 
the answer was right there, right? Like take 10, 20% of those slaves and train them and make them soldiers for the Confederacy, which the Union did to pretty solid results. But it never, it never happened until like the very, very end of the war, by which point it was too late. So I want to jump ahead a little bit into some of the claims that are, that are a little bit more uh, prevalent to, to modern day. And, and the first being that the Democrats owned slaves. You know, the, the Democratic South was generally seen as, as the people who, you know, in recent times were, were going to be the, the more likely to be racist. And if you, you run back 150 years, they were the ones who owned slaves. Yeah. Um, this isn't wrong. The Democratic Party in the 1850s was closely tied to slavery. That is 100% true. But I do think it kind of misses the mark a little bit. So, so what I mean by that is, is it more likely that white Christian landowners, you know, this landed gentry of South Carolina and Mississippi and Georgia and Louisiana, these, these sugar barons, were they liberals in the 1850s and 60s? So why does the Republican South still identify with these slaveholding Democrats? I mean, these, this is a part of the world where 70 years ago, paratroopers had to be called in to integrate school districts in the South. So I think that like focusing on the party instead of the region kind of misses the mark, in my opinion. I think you're right. Like, I think that if you look at political parties over time, I mean, it wasn't always the Democrats and the Republicans. At one point in time, I think it was the, the Federalists and the Democrats. And yep. then it transitioned. Pro- Republicans came out of the Whigs. Yeah, that's right. And the Whigs came out of the Federalists, right? Oh, gosh, I'm blanking on that one. I don't know. In some way, shape, or form, there were Federalists, there were Whigs, there were Republicans, there were Democrats, and and their values shifted over time. Like Sometimes the Democrats were a little bit more conservative, the Republicans were more liberal, uh, and vice versa. It just so happens that today, Democrats are associated with liberal values, and Republicans are associated with conservative values. And... It's important to recognize, you know, that Democrats of the 1800s aren't the same Democrats as today, and Republicans of the 1800s aren't the same Republicans as today. Right. I think it's a, I guess, a red herring to debate about what parties believe in what and which parties have been right over time. I think it's just, it's a distraction because we know that parties change. I mean, even... In the last four years, one party has changed quite a bit at the least and, you know, not really cares about fiscal responsibility anymore when four years ago, it sounds like one of the parties really did. So I would say that it's just not, it's not an important debate to have. It's, it's projection. It's basically a way of saying, Hey, like I'm right. I've always been right. (laughs) Right. Or, or, oh yeah. So like, yeah, maybe I had relatives who served with the army of Northern Virginia, but you know what? Democrats own slaves, not my responsibility. Mm -hmm. And and I think that like, like, I don't want to, you know, shame people for this. Like if, if you had family that was served in Confederate armies and you want to talk about that history, like, hell yeah, man, I'd love to do that. But that doesn't give you the right to guess, you know, absolve yourself of what the history is. Like, don't say my great-great-grandfather served in the 3rd Regiment of the South Carolina Guard and 
was wounded at Gettysburg and won of such and such an award at Chancellorsville, uh, but he was fighting for states' rights. It was totally about states' rights. Like you don't get the right to reinvent the history. Like you, you mm-hmm. I don't want to deprive you of you know pride in your heritage, but my family history is very much the creation of this country. Like I've got that Civil War sword that from a relative at Vicksburg. I have wow. a family member who was on the Supreme Court. I had a family member who won the popular vote. I'm really proud of that heritage and that history. We also ruined this country for a lot of people who weren't white Christian dudes. Like that doesn't mean that I need to like cry and you know absolve and gnash my teeth and beat myself and beg forgiveness. But yeah, my family was probably pretty racist. The history doesn't change. And whose wasn't? To be honest, I mean, who in America white wasn't? It seems like the majority certainly yeah, was. Yeah, exactly. Even going towards like more recent times, I feel like 80% of people, maybe not everybody, because I hate speaking in absolutes, but mm-hmm. a lot of people have that mm-hmm. racist grandparent or that racist great uncle or somebody that makes that very racist sibling. Yeah. Make... <laughs> it doesn't have to be the prior generation. Yeah. No kidding. Who makes very off color statements to put it lightly at Thanksgiving or at Christmas or, or wherever that might be. It doesn't have to be that. Another point off of that, that I'd like to kind of offer up as to why I think that with the Confederacy, people need to acknowledge that was about slavery and that's important is you know the confederates weren't just making bad jokes about slavery so quoting from uh, history.net originally issued in the october 2010 issue of the civil war times and this is a quote about uh u.s colored troops uh, and their white officers being led into richmond after the battle of the crater um, where a union mine team blew a line under blew a bomb up under the confederate lines and when uh, Union troops rushed in and tried to take the crater, they fell in and couldn't get out and then were surrounded. Quote, the Richmond Examiner acknowledged the executions had happened and encouraged Officer Mahone, whose men led the counterattack. We beg him, Officer Mahone, hereafter, when Negroes are sent forward to murder the wounded and come shouting no quarter, shut your eyes, General, strengthen your stomach with a little brandy, and let the work which God has entrusted to you and your brave men go forward to its full completion. That is, until every Negro has been slaughtered. Make every salient you are called upon to defend a fort pillow. Butcher every Negro that Grant sends against your brave troops and permit them not to soil their hands with the capture of a single hero. And that that fort pillow is a reference to another massacre of uh, black troops when Nathan Bedford Forrest's men take a, a Union fort in Tennessee. Until every Negro has been slaughtered. Yeah, jeez. Yeah, so I think it's important. Like, the, the Confederate policies were that U.S. colored troops needed to be executed. You cannot let slaves see that they can take up arms against the Confederacy and live. So I think it's also important to remember, too, that like you can have this history, and yes, you it's okay to be interested in it, but you have to recognize just how loathsome some aspects of it are. So I think the last point for tonight is, quote, Confederate statues are important to remembering history. I don't think this is wrong, but I think it's inconsistent. So what I mean by that is no one's saying that there shouldn't be Confederate statues, but they need to be in museums and battlefields, not not town squares. So I've always kind of left it up to, you know, a, a, each town needs to decide what they want to do with its statue and what that means. And it should be left up to each 
individual community. But I would like to point out, I just know so many people who would get so offended if there were statues of Denmark Vassy or Nat Turner or John Brown, who are you know famous uh, slave revolt leaders in every white town in the South. Like people would get so uproariously hurt and offended by that. Why should it be Lee and Jackson and Forrest instead? Well, it's, it's, it's mutually deciding what the right side is, right? I mean, which side was right on the side of history? Clearly the North. I mean, if you're a moral human being that thinks slavery is one of the worst human inventions. Yeah, I mean, I think another key point too is that a lot of these statues are not just these apolitical, this, these are dedicated to, you know, the men of the 10th Georgia, thank you for your service or to the men who died at such and such a place. Those exist. There are monuments on Civil War battlefields. I've been to a couple in Virginia and North Carolina. Those exist. But the the ones in the center of the town squares across the South, the ones that have really become the forefront of the Black Lives Matter movement and the, the latest battleground in the culture wars, those are almost always of a general and almost always were put up by the Daughters of the Confederacy in response to the Civil Rights Movement. Mm. that's the thing that really gets my goat these things were put up in what the 50s and 60s not only were they put up purely as a response to the civil rights movement but they were also made to be their crap they're hollow they're cheap they have no actual weight and it's why they tear down so easily is because there's no weight to them whatsoever they were purely put up as a symbolism to what existed in the past and as like an authoritarian reminder to black people in the South to recognize like, listen, this is where you came from and don't you dare forget it. And that's mm-hmm. disgusting. It, it's really telling that there are not any statues of James Longstreet, who's, you know, kind of a forgotten figure in the war, at least as far as like modern memory goes. Like people know Jackson and people know Lee and, you know, maybe people have heard of Nathan Bedford Forrest, but Longstreet's core was the one that was involved in Pickett's charge. Pickett's division was just a small part of that corps. Longstreet was probably the most influential general after Lee, after Jackson died. And, and there's no statues of him. And the simple fact of the matter is he associated himself with re- Republicans and worked with Reconstruction officials out in Louisiana after the war and you know tried, really worked hand in hand with the Freedmen's Bureau to try and make things better for former slaves. And that's why there are no Longstreet statues, because he's seen as a traitor. He cooperated with Republican reconstructors after the war. For me, it comes down to if you want to fly a Confederate flag, you want to have a Confederate statue, you have every right to do that. My my opinions, my feelings about it do not stop you from having that right. But you don't have the right to change the history behind it. So if you are going to say Confederate statues should stay up because it's remembering history, you got to own that. It doesn't matter if they're literal Nazis. You need to be able to feel comfortable saying this statue stays up because that's remembering history. Don't lie to yourself and say it wasn't about slavery. That's, I think, kind of my key point. I think another just kind of closing remark is, you know, people talk about the the Confederacy as this big, important part of American history, and they're still Americans. I am going to leave you with uh, a quote from a Confederate song after Reconstruction called, I'm a good old rebel.
I hate the Constitution, the Freedmen's Bureau too. I hate it all with uh, in forms of blue. 300,000 Yankees lay stiff in southern dust. We got 300,000 before they conquered us. They died of southern fever and southern steel and shot. I just wish it was 3 million instead of what we got. People get so uproariously pissed off about Colin Kaepernick and black athletes kneeling, but will not bat an eye at the Confederate flag or Confederate statues. The group of people who were exhorting the defenders of Richmond, Virginia, make every salient you are called upon to defend a Fort Pillow butcher every Negro that Grant sends against your brave troops. Go to Chickamauga. Go to Antietam, Maryland. Go to Chattanooga, Tennessee. Go to Chancellorsville, Virginia. There's graveyards filled with people, black, white, north, south, rich, poor, Union Confederate, who died because of secession. And I think that like, if we're going to keep these statues up and remember history, what's the lesson we want to learn from this history, right? Like, I think the lesson from the Confederacy should be that factionalism, using the Bible to support atrocities, white supremacy, and putting profit over people is dangerous, right? Like, it caused the most destructive war in American history. But I have a, I have a, a sense that the people who really want to keep Confederate statues up don't want to talk about, like, the lessons we should learn from the Confederacy. I feel like we should cut kind of where John just <laughs> finished. And... I don't think there's a whole lot that Tim or I can add kind of on top of that. I know that that was a little bit of a monologue at the end there, but blacked out a little bit there. Yeah, that's fine. I mean, I really appreciate you kind of like taking point on this and especially since, I mean, you living in Texas and being this passionate about the civil war, you, you see this on a, on a regular basis. It's weird. You say that because I was remarking to my wife, I, I saw more Confederate flags in rural Michigan than I do living in urban Texas. And that's 100% because of the association with conservative politics Hmm. and white identity, which is weird, right? Like, I mean, the Texas Brigade is the most important uh, brigade in the Army of Northern Virginia. They're literally formed a couple counties away from us. The thing that gets me is just the hypocrisy, right? Like, people get outrageously mad at Colin Kaepernick for kneeling, but then don't think like, oh yeah, you know, the people who decided that making, keeping their profit margins up was more important than not starting a shooting war, n- no questions asked. And Lincoln didn't even want to end slavery. The, the Republican policy was just, it's not going to spread further West. We're going to grandfather it in where it is. It's not going to go anywhere. It was a very, some would argue, probably a too much of a reasonable compromise for something as evil as slavery. And that wasn't good enough. Yeah, it's kind of like um, similar to Biden's stance on fracking. Where it is, it can stay, but there's no new expanse of it. And eventually mm-hmm. it'll it'll die out. Hey, the, the best reason to leave Confederate statues up is to tell people white supremacy, factionalism, and this sort of interest in profit over people is actively dangerous. That's the lesson I'd want people to learn, but it's not the one people want to hear. Well, with that, I think it's time to to close us out for the evening. So as always, we appreciate you tuning in. Please give us a follow on Misinformation Podcast on Instagram. Send us a DM, reply to our stories, put it in the comments if you have any ideas on, on future episodes, questions, things you want us to discuss. Um, 
And there is a way to enter voice audio and kind of submit your own questions or submit your own comments or your feedback. And if it's good or bad or mediocre, we'll play it on the show and we'll have a discussion around it. So please shoot something in, engage with us. We would love to hear from you. Until next time, this is Ryan, John, and Tim. We'll see you later. Bye.